0: Hello and welcome to A Murderous Affair. My name is Gabrielle and this is the podcast where we talk about women in history known for mayhem and murder. Happy New Year. Uh we made it. 2020 is done and we aren't going to say or do anything to jinx this upcoming year. Also, we've had a huge jump in downloads lately. So if you're new here, hi. Welcome. Enjoy your stay. Sorry that this isn't the most consistently uploaded podcast, but I can promise you that you will get three episodes a month. If you're looking for some recommended episodes, some of my personal favorites are when we talked about Julie Albany, a badass fencer who was pardoned three times by the king for murdering her opponents while fencing, or Catalina de Arasso. A lieutenant nun who was pardoned from killing like over 20 people because she was a virgin. Both are easily in my top five favorites. This week, we're celebrating. 2021 by going back a century to 1921 and investigating the murdering postmistress Lena Clark. Before we get any further, I just want you to know that my resources are from chroniclingamerica.gov, The Historical Crime Detective, a Palm Beach Post article, The True Crime Historian, and The Palm Beach Past, and... On these websites, if you just go and look up Lena Clark, you'll see the articles that I used. Lena was born in 1886, and nothing is said about her mother, as is typical for women from that time, but of course, we know that her father, Almond T- Taylor Clark, was a minister because it's important to know his occupation, but really her mother is an unimportant beyond the fact that she gave birth to her. See, this is part of the reason why the podcast was created to tell people about the women who historically tend to forget. In our case, it's the murder-related ones or otherwise chaotic or mayhem-related ones, but I still feel like we're doing our part. Lena was apparently really intelligent as a child. She read philosophy books by the time she was six, according to author Stuart MacGyver, who wrote about Lena in his book Murder in the Tropics. Lena had a sister, Maude, who worked as a librarian, and a brother, John, who worked as a postmaster until 1918, before he left to make a living as a snake charmer slash taxidermist. I just love that that's his combination job type. But when he left, it meant that a position as postmaster was open, and Lena herself took the job in 1920. She'd already been working at the bank, and she had the backing of local businessmen who signed a petition to hire her. Unfortunately, her brother John died while working at his more adventurous-sounding job when he got bitten by a snake on Christmas Day, 1920. This is also where it seems that Lena's undoing began as well. Now, here's a quick history lesson for you. Back in the 1920s, post offices had a lot of cash because they took in money orders and war bonds. On July 26, 1921, Lena sent two unregistered mail sacks to the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank, which held about $32,000 in cash. When the mail sacks arrived, it turned out that they had been fit with cut mail order catalogs in order to create the same size and weight that cash currency would have. When this was found out, a postal inspector came to question Lena about the theft, but apparently she had her story straight because they let her go without further questioning. On Sunday, August 1st, Lena hired a driver to take her to Orlando, Florida, where she then checked into room 87 of the San Juan Hotel in downtown Orlando under a fake name. There, she met up with a former coworker named Fred Miltimore. Fred had left his post office job in West Palm Beach a few months back and was running a small restaurant in Orlando called The Arcade. Later that evening, she went to the police station in Orlando and told officers that they needed to go to the San Juan Hotel and arrest Fred for stealing the $32,000 from her post office at West Palm Beach. She admitted, to, she admitted to being a vigilante and said that she'd drugged him with a morphine pill and left him in the hotel room. The police chief had her in his office, and after he confirmed that Lena was the postmistress, he sent officers to the hotel to collect Fred. But, surprise... When they went to find him, they didn't find a drugged man, but instead a dead one. The gun was lying near the body, and it's reported that he was either shot in the head or the chest. The officers passed this along to the police chief, who began questioning Lena about Fred's death. At first, she denied killing him, but then admitted that she had shot him because he would blame the theft on her. She was soon indicted on charges of first-degree murder. Now, one of the quotes I have says, I shot Miltmore. I did it right after attempting to make him sign a statement that he had committed the robbery. He wouldn't sign, and in desperation, I shot him. But... There's a lot of people in West Palm Beach who say that it was more than that. Judge James Knott wrote a series called The Brown Rapper in the Palm Beach Post, and he wrote a two-parter on Clark and the crimes that she committed. In it, he's quoted as saying that old-timers in West Palm Beach say it was common knowledge that Lena Clark and Fred Miltmore had an ongoing romantic affair and that he jilted her, hence the killing. As can happen in major criminal cases, her story became sensational and her infamy reached celebrity status. She got fan mail, flowers, she was able to repaint and redecorate her jail cell with the supplies that were being sent to her. She wrote a short autobiography and sold it to local newspapers and soon recanted her confession, saying that she had, quote, no recollection of making it. She also became an amateur poet. One of her poems that was published in a lot of newspapers was called, quote, a fool's wisdom, and I I have it here for you guys i told you the course you pursued was wrong but you laughed and said women are poor weak fools so i hushed my lips on life's merry song to pray while you all disregarded god's rules i knew how your castle would crash on your head how the flowers would turn in your hands to weeds. I saw when you turned from the ruins and fled. Do you think I can meet now your soul's sorest needs? To bring your mistakes to successes still, you look to my cunning to save you now. Weak, fool of a woman, perhaps I will. Of course love will fill the bitter years. Perhaps was too cruel of a word to say. Angels blot from your records my prayers and my tears, lest they hide them from God at the judgment day. And in all honesty, this is actually a really well written poem. And even more so, there's that pull because you can imagine that when this was published in newspapers, with her infamy being what it was, and her kind of like celebrity st- and her celebrity status at the time, people were analyzing this like crazy you know, is this about the man she murdered? Is it to a secret lover? Is it her admittance of guilt? That makes me wonder if she wrote it with the intention of taking away from the actual facts of the case and from her confession of actually shooting and killing someone and more kind of draw into and make her more of this celebrity person that people feel like they know and maybe get a lighter sentence or something like that you guys will see in a few one as we keep reading that she was actually considered to be very clever and manipulative I mean maybe it is just maybe I'm getting too deep into it but it could just be like a a chance to like grab her five minutes of fame while she is in the newspapers but it also could be a way of trying to win public recognition and win that public perception over to her side so that maybe she doesn't get as harsh of a a sentence. It's interesting no matter what and it is actually like a well-written poem which is weird to say about someone who admitted to shooting someone else. As the trial got closer she changed her story again. The newest story was that another man, Joseph B. Elwell, had given her $20,000 to cover for the fact that the money that had been reported missing, the 32000 had really been stolen in 1918. And she was trying to cover for this theft by borrowing money from Joseph Elwell, which still leaves about $12,000 out of the picture. So I'm not quite sure how that worked, but that's her newest story. They couldn't double check this, however, because Elwell was actually dead. He was killed in New York in 1920 for a murder that is still unsolved. And, you know, the $32,000 was recovered in her belongings and dispersed in her bank accounts. So I feel like that also is a pretty huge red flag that maybe she's just throwing whatever story out there in hopes that it'll take all eyes off of her. But moving on. There were two law firms that Lena hired to defend her, an Orlando law and a West Palm Beach law firm. Both firms decided on an insanity defense, and Lena played into it as much as she could. She brought a crystal ball with her onto the witness stand and testified for several hours. She told about her 12 previous lives that she had lived, the highlights of which included being involved in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, living as the goddess Isis in Egypt, as Bernice, the last queen of the Jews, then as King Herod's wife before she was eaten by lions. Jumping forward a few centuries, she is now dating William Shakespeare and was the model for the character of And in every life, Fred Miltmore was always there, chasing and persecuting her. She also used her crystal ball not only to proclaim that she would be found innocent, but that this would be the start of her national career, where she would serve as vice president of the United States, then be moved to president when Eugene V. Debs of the Socialist Party was assassinated. Now, psychiatrists, which fun fact, were called alienists back then, which I find fascinating, were called to testify to her mental state. Two found her to be insane, and one said that she was a master manipulator who was just faking it. Ultimately, the jury only took two and a half hours to find her not guilty by reason of insanity. She was sent to the Florida State Mental Hospital at Chattahoochee, which she was not happy about. In fact, when she was read her sentence, she made a proclamation that she would have rather been sent to the gallows. Honestly, if I was the judge on that case, I probably would have said something like, oh, well, we can definitely do that if you want. Like, you got off and away from killing someone and stealing $32,000, and your punishment is to be sent to a mental hospital rather than jail. Although back in 1921, you do have to take into consideration that the mental hospitals and the way that they were run back then were not very humane in a majority of cases. So maybe that's where, from that perspective, I guess I can understand, but still, you know, she got out of going to prison for killing someone. I still feel like it's a little bit of a lighter sentence. Anyway, she was only there for less than a year. She was soon released and basically returned to her normal life. She went back to working at at the church she was part of and at the Red Cross. She lived in a house with her sister and actually went to England to do research. There are actually articles where she shows up mentioned for her relief efforts throughout the 40s and the 50s. There were some reporters who found her parents and asked what they thought of their daughter's arrest and subsequent release. Reverend Clark, who was in Atlanta, Georgia at the time, declared that, quote, the law of man may declare our daughter a robber and a murderess but in the sight of god and her aged father and mother she is as innocent as a newborn babe lena clark died in 1967 and pretty much fades to obscurity from there and that is the story of the postmistress murderess Lena Clark. Honestly, I feel like the simplest explanation and the simplest like, straight way to the truth of what happened is that Lena stole the $32,000, tried to blame it on her previous co-worker and possible ex-lover, something went wrong, and she shot him. And then everything else after is just misdirection. The whole story about the $20,000 being given to her to cover for the fact that the money had been stolen in 1918... That feels like just more attempts at taking the blame off of her or trying to muddy the waters as much as possible. What makes most sense to me is she still, even if that was true, she still admitted to murdering Fred Miltimore and basically got away with it, which is really unfortunate. But that's just what I think. I would love to know what you guys think of this story and our murderers of the week. You can reach me at Frumius Reads F R U M I O U S R E A D S, and I am on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook, basically all social media. You can also check out the podcast homepage at frumiusreads.com forward slash a dash murderous dash affair. There we've got all our episodes uploaded, as well as a transcript of what I talk about in every episode. You can also check out our merch. We've got some cool shirts for sale. They're super comfy, and we've only got a couple left. So if you guys are interested in checking that out, and it helps support the podcast, um, go to frumiusreads.com forward slash shop. Make sure to subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you listen. We're basically everywhere, kind of like the NSA. (laughs) We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, all of the above, anywhere you can listen to podcasts. But that's all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Goodbye.